and come and enlarge our view of who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. All right. So uh, it's wonderful being back again in uh, Durbanville AM. Um, thank you so much for the warm welcome. Adi and I always actually love coming through to Durbanville. The last time we were here was in the old building in Stellenberg and would come in quite a bit. Often just come through and, and I've got to know some of you quite well over the years. Uh, but it's such a delight being with you all this morning. Um, I've been married now in January for 26 years. And, and so my wife deserves a real round of applause. Putting up with me. <laughs> um, and yeah, we have three children. Our oldest just turned 23 about a month ago, uh, Michaela. And we've got a middle daughter, Joelle, who's in Bloemfontein. Why Bloemfontein, you would ask? That's a great question. I don't know, but she felt the Lord leader there. She's studying in Bloom. And uh, those who are from Bloom, we love you. Um, and then I've got a third. Uh, we've got a, a son who's 16, Daniel, and he's still at home with us. Um, yeah, in grade 10. So that's a little bit about our family background. We live in Wellington, and um, it is warm in Wellington. You need, I must say, those that live in Wellington, uh, before I get into the preach, they, they have a special amount of character. They, they really are Christ-like because it's so warm there. It, it refines your character and makes you more like Jesus. So it is really a, but it's an awesome place to live in, and we are privileged to be out there at the moment. So so what I want to do is this morning, I would love to preach um, and, and dive into a portion of Scripture and really unpack a piece of Scripture with us today from Isaiah chapter 6. And I want to preach around the majesty and greatness of God, the majesty and greatness of God from Isaiah chapter 6. And my heart this morning is that as you look at the Word, that God would give us a, a bigger vision of who He is, and that the result of that vision of seeing who God is afresh because we, can all, we all need a vision of God, amen? We all need to see Him. Um, and as we do, that it prepares us for a life of service, for a life of serving Him. And as we will look at the life of Isaiah now, that the Lord, well, I'm going to bring out four aspects of the character of God and the nature of God that for us will prepare us for a life of service. And in the beginning, we were singing that song, uh, well, now, the, we were singing the song, um, uh, blessed assurance, and the chorus goes, um, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. But actually, we should be singing, praising my Savior all my life long. And you know, it's great that we can start well and serve the Lord, and we want zeal for His house and zeal for the Lord, but it's actually how we end well. And you'll never be able to run your race firm to the end unless you're rooted and have a foundation of who God is a firm foundation of who that is. And so I want to give that to you this morning. And we live in a world, I want to say as we look at Isaiah 6, we live in a world where people have great thoughts about themselves. You know, we live in a very man-centered society. We have great thoughts about who we are. But we have very small thoughts about God. That is the, the problem in our, in our culture, and that's often the problem in the church. We have so much about how we should be great and how God can make you great. But we don't hear enough about actually how we are small and God is to be great. So I want to really look into that today. And I want to start as a look in Isaiah 6, just to use the illustration, and then I'm going to unpack the scripture of, um, and I've shared about this before in other places and written about it, but of Mount Everest. And you know, climbers who climb Mount Everest, 
By the way, if you know a bit about Everest, obviously it's the tallest mountain in the world. It's 8.8 kilometers high. So if you want to climb it, you have to climb 8.8 kilometers up. It is so high that there are, are these winds that circle the earth. They, um, these winds um, are these, you know, the winds, and they, they, these winds, these kind of trade winds, they hit often 120, 130 kilometers an hour. And those winds that circle the earth hit the top of Mount Everest. And if you climb Everest, you have to often deal with those type of winds. In summer, it averages minus 19. That's the temperature in summer, average. And in winter, minus 35. And climbers who climb Everest have said this one thing about that, that when they have before this majestic mountain, they realize how small they are, that they are little. And I want to say that in a sense, that should be our response or our posture before the sight of the mighty God who made all things, who spoke that mountain into existence, that we actually, God would want us to have a healthy sense of his greatness and of our smallness in many ways. Not our insignificance, our smallness. There's a difference. So let's read Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 8. And we see the same thing with Isaiah, that he realizes how small he is in view of God's greatness. And it starts off in verse 1. It says that, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe was filled the temple. It's going to stop there. And it starts off with this young man, Isaiah. And by the way, Isaiah at this point wasn't older. He was younger, and he was his prophet. In other words, what is a prophet, you might ask? A prophet in the Old Testament was a spokesman for God. He spoke the words of God. And in many ways, Isaiah's lips, he was used to speaking the words of God, even as a young man. And as this young man, he had a zeal for God. He loved the Lord. And actually, where you find him is he actually is in the temple worshiping the Lord. That's where, if you look at the context, he's gone to Jerusalem in the Jewish temple, and he's worshiping Yahweh, he's worshiping the living God. And in that place, it's like heaven opens up to him, and he has a vision, a revelation of God. God meets with him as he is worshiping God. By the way, don't you find, isn't that wonderful with worship? That when we worship God, we encounter him. That he comes to us, he reveals himself to us often in that place. And it says this, and it's interesting how the, the verse says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Why is that important? Well, you must understand, and to give you a bit of backstory, King Uzziah was a very stable, prosperous Israeli or Jewish king, king of Judah at that time. And King Uzziah had been the king of Israel for 50 years. That's a long time. And he had served the Lord for most of that part. He loved the Lord. He was a God-fearing man. And the nation of, or the, of Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, at that point had prospered and was doing well. And they, they weren't attacked by their enemies. They were a very stable economy. They were flourishing. But what happened with Uzziah is that in the latter part of his life, the last couple of years, he became very proud and arrogant. And basically what happened was God judged him and gave him leprosy and he spent his last days as a man full of leprosy because he had basically sinned against God in various ways. And so this man dies in that year. And at that time, there's a lot of like instability in the country. Um, there's another nation from the north, Assyria, that's coming down, this like world superpower. And they're 
in the future they were going to invade Israel, and there's a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. Do you ever feel like that in our country? The instability, the uncertainty, right? You know, oh, what's going on? And I love what it says, that in that time of instability, what happens? He says, I saw the Lord, and where is the Lord when Isaiah sees him? It says, sitting upon a throne. And so the first aspect that I want to look at is, we see that God is revealed to Isaiah as Lord, seated on a throne. And the word actually, for the, I saw the Lord, is the word Adonai. It's an old Hebrew word, and it means master or commander, the absolute ruler. And it's saying that God is on a throne. And I want to say today, that has not changed. God is ruling, that although there are governments that are shaking in the world that is shaking, the implication is that you and I should not fear, because we, if we're in God's kingdom, and God is your king, that means that you're ultimately under his government. And he is a good God, and he keeps us, and he will help to navigate through these difficult times that we're in. And I love what verse 3 says, is Isaiah, um, it carries on, he says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, and he speaks about the Lord as the Lord of hosts in verse 3. And I'm going to come back to verse 3 just now. But it, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this term, Lord of hosts, gives this idea of this God who is not, he really has all power and all authority in all things. You know, I'd maybe just share a story with you. I was, uh, last holidays, I was feeling, actually last December, I think when we hit stage 8 at one point, there was a talk about stage 8 at Eskom, and I was feeling very anxious. I was feeling very fearful. I was like, Lord, you know, yo, I, how do I navigate living in this country? And I want to do well, but like, and I'm, I was born in the Seychelles, so I have a, actually have a Seychelles passport. I'm a citizen of two countries, South Africa and the Seychelles. You know, so some people are like, why don't you just go back to the Seychelles? If you don't know where that is, it's like Mauritius, but much better. Mauritius is a bit like a dump compared to the Seychelles. So really, it is beautiful. So I was born there. I'm French. I'm French background. That's why I have an unusual surname. And I, like, do we go back? You know, maybe we trust for the Lord to send us and we plant a church in Seychelles. You know, of course, all I'm doing is I'm spiritualizing my fear and my unbelief. And I remember I was reading through Isaiah, and I came to this portion in Isaiah 6 where it speaks about God on his throne. And I remember the Lord just saying to me, Mike, you need a vision of God. You need to understand that I ultimately am over every government. I, although the world is shaking, I'm over these things. And if you put your faith in me, that is the most important thing. Trust me. And I remember just my heart settling with fear, you know, because we have the Prince of Darkness, Eskom. We have all these realities. <clears throat> and it's just like a needed sense of God on his throne. My friends, I want to ask you, where is the Lord for you? Do you understand that he's ruling and reigning? You know, and God on the throne, what's the implication of that? Is that God would never forget his children. God is not some old geatric on the throne. He's not some gray-haired, um, semi-senile person that forgets all about you. Like, oh, where is my child? Oh, yeah, that one, Kevin, where is he? You know, I've forgotten about him. And you, where are you, Lord? You ever feel like that? I want to say God is on the throne and he has not forgotten you. He's the Lord of hosts. I love um, Psalm 139. And if you read the Old Testament, you have this ongoing picture of because God is God and he's Lord, 
He knows everything about us. And I love what Psalm 139 says. It starts off and says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. Um, you know my thoughts even from afar. That God would know you better than you know yourself. There's nothing we can hide from him. And then he carries on. It says, Lord, you have hemmed me in, in front and behind. In other words, that God surrounds us. And then the psalmist, if it was David or, or Asaph, he says, but such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Don't you love that? This knowledge of who God is, that he is Lord and he knows all things and he has me. It's too wonderful. He hems you in. In other words, he surrounds you and you can't escape him. That's actually the language used. It was used of when an army would want to attack a city, it would literally surround that city and it would attack it. That's the word used, hem in. In other words, God has you surrounded. You're not going to run away from him. And when you think he's forgotten you, he hasn't. He's on a throne and he's ruling. And we see his lordship and we worship him because he is a lord. He's not just some kind of attachment on my life. You know, like God is like, yeah, you know, it's when, I, when it suits me. He's Lord of all, as the old saying goes, or he's not Lord at all. You can't play around with this God. Let's look at the second part. We see his holiness in Isaiah 6, and it carries on, and it says, I saw the Lord above him, in verse 2, um, stood, above the Lord, stood the seraphim, and these, you've got these weird creatures around the throne. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one, another, <coughs> and one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So I want to look at this thing of the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And the first thing we see as the Lord is on the throne, we see these creatures that are around the throne called the seraphim. Really unusual creatures. And it's almost like out of a fantasy novel. That they've got these wings that are covering their eyes, covering their body, covering their feet. And they're singing out a song of worship to God. And the word seraphim, actually it comes from a word which means burning ones. That literally these seraphim were the burning ones. And some commentators seem to think that these angels were literally on fire. That they were burning. That they had this kind of, um, this glow about them that they were on fire, the seraphim. Fire. <laughs> and these beings, why were they on fire? And you know, why did God have these beings around the throne? Why does he have so? And, you know, some have conjectured, was it, is it because that they, they are so close to the Lord, whom the Bible says is an all-consuming fire, that they can't help but to be alike themselves? Or that they're so close to the glory and the holiness of God that they're on fire? But either way, you've got these beings of such purity that they are literally on fire. And then it says that they cover their, with their, with their wings, they are covering their eyes and they're covering their feet. Why is that? Why do they cover their eyes and cover their feet? And again, it seems like that although that these are these holy beings, they cannot look upon the holiness of God, that he is so holy. That God is so magnificent that even these angels can't look upon him. 
I know someone else has said that, that they covered their feet as well. Why did they do that? Why did they cover their feet? And it could be as well that they are so in awe of who God is that they have to hide themselves because they want to be nothing. And they want God to be everything. It's like, Lord, we have to hide ourselves because we want the, 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 the majesty and the honor to go towards you. And this is such a challenge for us today, isn't it? We, where we, we make worship all about ourselves. You know, we kind of want to make ourselves look good. I don't know about you, but that's me. I sometimes am very aware of myself. But these seraphim try to hide themselves in the very presence of God. And then what they do is they're singing out, holy, holy, holy. Why do they sing that song? They're singing holy. And by the way, what is holiness? Have you ever, you know, thought about that question? What, what does it mean that God is holy? And effectively what that means, it means that God is separate from us. That's actually the essence of the word, that God is not like you and I at all. And I love what Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 40, 41, when um, uh, the Lord had sees Isaiah, and God asks Isaiah the question. He says, but who will you compare me to? I'm like nothing else you ever see or ever know. I'm not like that because I'm different from you. I'm other. And in some ways, God is similar to us. How? Obviously, we are made in the image of God. So in some ways, God is personal, like we are. We reflect that nature. He, he's, he, he draws near to us. He's a father. But God is also other than us. He's a creator, and we are the creature. And it's like, he's so different from us. He's so removed from us. He's holy. And it's interesting the way it describes it. Holy, holy, holy. Why does he emphasize it three times? Because often when they did that in the Bible, it was to make a point and to emphasize, God is holy, he's holy, he's holy, he's holy. It's trying to emphasize the point of part of who God is, that we need to get. Don't you get it? That's what they're saying. Can't you see? Don't you get it? God isn't just loving. He's holy. He's, he's radiant. He's glorious. He's so pure that the Bible says that he can't even look upon sin. That he's so pure that, what does 1 John say? That in him is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That this God we serve is a being of pure light. Three persons. Then, holy, holy, holy. Are you guys with me? Everyone's still with me? Okay. The church fathers believed that the three, the three, the refrain of holy, holy, holy also referred to the Trinity. The idea that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We know we serve one God, but He's three persons. Amen? Three persons. So, Holy the Father, Holy the Son, Holy the Spirit. And you know, one of the great convictions in the marks of us following after the Lord and being Christians, following Christ, is that we believe in the Trinity. We're not like a Jehovah's Witness or not like a Muslim. We, don't, we, are, we are Christians because we believe that God is three in one. That the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Someone once said, it's an old saying, if you try and understand the Trinity, you're going to lose your mind. But if you try and deny the Trinity, you will lose your faith. So this is what makes us Christian. And if you don't understand or have an understanding of these things, 
We have to read our Bibles. We have to develop a theology and understanding of who God is. Because at the end of the day, it sustains us so that we can serve him and walk with him till the end of our days, as you'll see just now. Not only that, but here's something that is profound. Is that Jesus in John chapter 12, I'm not going to turn there, but I'm going to mention it. Is Jesus is arguing as he usually does with these religious leaders of the day. Yeah, Jesus was a bit of a troublemaker, you know. He would, he would argue in the best sense of the word. He would argue and he would cause trouble with these um, religious leaders, these Pharisees who were self-righteous and proud and arrogant. And he, and he quotes, what he does is in John 12, you can read it yourself, he's at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, just after the section, and then he goes on and says, Isaiah, or John actually says, Isaiah saw the glory, his glory, the glory of Jesus. He encountered Jesus on that day. Do you know that the person, when we talk about Isaiah 6, who is the living God that we are seeing? We actually are seeing a picture of Jesus. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. It's in John 12, verse 41. You can check it out. So part of that is actually seeing Christ himself. Isn't that amazing? He's holy. He's separate. He hates sin. Absolute purity and perfection. The third aspect that we see about who God is, is we see his glory. We see his glory. And I love this. Let's turn again to chapter, um, verse 3, Isaiah 6. And then verse 3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it says this, The whole earth is full. The whole earth is full of his glory. What does that mean? What is the glory of God? And sorry, I hope this doesn't become a theology lesson. But sometimes we need a little bit of more meat. So that it actually forces us in, like, maybe you've got to go away and digest this. Because, like, ah, okay, this is a bit too much for me now. That's okay. Sometimes you can go away and cut it into small pieces. I'm trying to do that for us. The whole earth is full of his glory. And glory is how God shows himself. It's his attributes. It's his characteristics. It's his um, magnificence that he shows to his creatures of what he is like. His power and his authority revealed. And it says that the whole earth will receive or experience his glory. How will the whole earth experience the glory of God? Well, one of the ways is when Jesus returns again. And when Jesus returns, he will return as the rightful Lord and King of this place, and he's going to come back again. And we know that he's going to return as Savior, but one of the ways that Jesus will return is that Jesus will return as a judge. And something we don't always factor in, that when we think of the glory of God, we think, actually, Scripture says that part of that is he comes to judge. And you know, there's an interesting scripture in Revelation 1 verse 7. That's going to freak us out a little bit. In Revelation 1 7, it says, and this speaks about the return of the Lord. Oh, for you as a believer, isn't, won't it be a glorious day when Jesus returns? You know, Paul says, I long for that day. He speaks about the, the day of the Lord as a longing. And it's like, I'm, I often have to repent, I'll be honest, because I don't long enough for that day. I've got a, the other day at the gathering, how many of you were at the gathering last Saturday? And after the preach, I, I remember I had to actually go, Andrew preached on the end times. And afterwards in worship, I had to repent. I was like, Lord, I'm not longing for that day, like Paul says. Help me along. 
And there's a story, but, but for us as believers, what a day it'll be. Oh, what a day for those who know him and have pursued him and have had faith in Christ. But I love in Revelation 1-7, well, it's quite scary. It says, on that day, the day of the Lord, for many, it will be a day of, what does it say? Terror. What? Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. And that those, if you are not right with God, if you've lived for yourself or you've used God in some way, that day for some will be a day of holy terror. Whereas I says that they'll run into the mountains. They'll say, the mountains fall on us because we cannot take the, the presence of the Lord and the glory of God because for them, glory means judgment and punishment and wrath. But for us, it means redemption and joy and salvation. What a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And you know, as Isaiah sees this God, this holy, this, this king, this Lord who's glorious, what does Isaiah begin to do? Well, look at what, what Isaiah says. He says in, in verse 4, in verse 5, and I'd like to read what is his response to this, to God. And he says in verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the temple. So he's in church, and, the ch and there's smoke in the, in the church. It's not a smoke machine. This is the glory of God. And as he experiences the glory of God, he says in verse 5, he doesn't go like this, Hey, Lord, yay, my father, my friend, my buddy, my lover. It's so good to see you, Lord. How does he respond? He goes like this. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. How does he respond? He basically is saying this, and I love the King James Version. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. That means calamity and trouble is coming. That's what it means. And it actually speaks of sorrow, distress, and despair at his sinful condition. He's saying this, I am in deep trouble. I'm in deep trouble. There's other ways to say that in our culture, right? He's saying, I am amazed. I am like gone down the, the river without a paddle. I'm in the dwang. I am, I'm in such a, man, I, why? And by the way, this is surprising. I don't know, when I read this, I am so surprised because Isaiah was a good man. He was a holy man. I mean, he's a prophet, for goodness sake. It's like, what, Isaiah, you responded like this? Like, you're a good man. But in light of the holiness of God, he realizes that even though he's God-fearing, he realizes in light of who God is, he's actually broken and sinful and depraved. And he's actually, without the mercy of God, he finds himself in deep, deep trouble. In other words, God desires, or God could absolutely just wipe him out. And I love what he says here. He doesn't go, woe are my parents because they're the ones that did this to me. Woe is my society because I'm a product and I'm a victim of my culture. He goes, woe is me. 
It's interesting the way he starts with himself. In other words, he says that, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've fallen short of the glory of God. But it's me. I'm taking ownership. I realize that the problem starts with me. And you know, I love this with Christian growth, with falling after the Lord, that if you really want to grow in the Lord, you start by saying, actually, it starts with me. And I meet too many Christians that blame society and blame their boss and blame their teacher and blame their friends and blame the government and blame their wife or blame their husband. We and it's like we, we're, we're in a society that everybody's a victim. Shame. I'm so sorry, it's, you know, and, but there's nothing of this here. There's a sense that he understands that ultimately the problem begins with himself. And he's in need of rescue. He's in need of, of mercy. He's in need of forgiveness. And he's actually crying out for mercy. He's crying out for help. And I know, you know, if, let me just say for me in my marriage, for Aiden and I, we've been married, as I mentioned, a while. I know some of you have been married a lot longer, others shorter. Some of you are single here. But I find that when AD and I are not doing well in our marriage, and, and or we, when, when the kids were younger and, and our kids were wild and struggling, you know, I could have blamed all kinds of things and maybe I said, well, AD is not doing well as a wife or, you know, we're struggling in our marriage and that's the reason. I remember, and something Andrew taught me, it was so helpful, he said, when there is disorder around you, he says, the first place you look is in the mirror. And you look in the mirror and you go, Lord, it's got to start with me. I have to change. I have to change. And so I often had found myself, and I still do, apologizing to my wife, repenting to her, saying, oh, babe, I know, even though that maybe at certain times, God forbid, she had maybe been more to blame than even me, that would never happen, of course. But let's say, let's just for, you know, hypothetically, that AD had even caused, you know, there'd been something that had made me upset and, and we had tension in our marriage. But even then, I've had to look in the mirror and go, actually, the way I've responded was ungodly. There's something in me that's broken. Even though I'm a Christian, there's something in me fundamentally that needs redeeming and sanctifying and being made more into the image of Jesus. And I've had to apologize to her, babe, I'm sorry. Because actually I realized that I haven't, something of, of in me that needs changing. And he does this. You know, interesting with Paul the Apostle, this great apostle, if you read the New Testament. Paul the Apostle writes two-thirds of the New Testament. I mean, right, this man was pretty holy. He had been there. He had raised the dead. He had a revelation of the gospel. Do you know what Paul says about himself? Look at this. AD 54, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to just quickly mention as he gets older, how he views himself. He says, Paul to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for I am the least of the apostles. So he had a very humble view of himself. Then he says in Ephesians 3 verse 8, and this is seven years later, when he's a bit more mature in the Lord, he says, I am the least of all the saints. Now, he's not being super humble here. He's just, he means it. He knows that actually he's not much. 
but by the grace of God. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, in AD 64, and by the way, this is towards when he's really mature in the Lord, he says this to Timothy, that I am the chief of sinners. In other words, out of all the sinners, and by the way, Paul, he said, no, 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 Paul, you didn't understand your righteousness in Christ. You know, you don't really understand who you are. My goodness. This man knew he was loved by God. He knew that he was secure in the Father's hand. He was a child of God. But in the midst of that, he says to Timothy, towards the end of his ministry, I am the chief of sinners. Similar to Isaiah, what's happening? It's this. And this is what I found, and I'm sure many of you can attest to this. The longer you have been walking with the Lord, you know, it's a bit like a, a piece of corn. It starts off proud and green. As the, uh, as the illustration grows, and it grows up this piece of wheat. It's green and proud, and that's what young believers are. You come into a bit of knowledge, and you come to know God. It's like, I'm a child of God. It's wonderful. It's, it's, but as that, that corn matures, what happens is the head, it, it gets the wheat on, and it actually be, turns yellow, and actually a mature corn begins to stoop. And that's a sign of maturity is when you start off in the faith, you're a bit arrogant, or insecure, you know, and you, you kind of, you, you swing from one extreme to the other, but as you grow in the Lord, it's like, like Paul says, actually, no, I'm the chief of sinners. I know I'm loved by God, but actually I know that I'm just a product of his mercy. And if we can have more of that, we will see more of the glory of God coming into us as churches. Um, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, brothers. Romans 12 says, and Philippians 2 says. So what does Isaiah do? He's, he's in this place. And by the way, I haven't had time to unpack that, but I, 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 let me just use one more illustration of this. I want to use the illustration of a yacht. I know one of the Puritans uh, back in the day used the illustration of like a boat with a sail. You know, what makes a boat? My father was a yachtsman. He used to sail around the Seychelles. And he used to sail around, and he said, actually, a yacht, a boat, is very, very, even in storms, a boat will always right itself. Even if it gets capsized by huge waves, the boat is like cork. It'll always pop up again. He said, it's very safe on boats. I'd go, yeah, okay. And he sailed around the world. And my, my father said, part of it is because of the design of the boat. The way that a yacht is designed is you've got, a, obviously, a very tall mast, but then it, it counterbalances with a very steep uh, keel under the boat. This, this kind of deep keel, this fin that goes at the bottom of the boat. And he says it creates ballast and balance. And I want to say to you, my friends, that is for us as Christians. The mast is knowing that you are a child of God. You are loved by God. You are secure in Christ. You are made righteous because of what Jesus has done. But the keel... Is like knowing like Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Within me, I am on a journey, and I need to remain humble because every day I'm in need of grace. And when you realize that tension, you are both saint and sinner, as Martin Luther said. You are a, a saint, but you are a practicing sinner every day. And if you don't think you are, we will show you you are. <laughs> Sorry, that's bad. If you don't think you are, you've just committed the sin of self-righteousness. Got you. So what, what does Isaiah do? Now, Isaiah's in the place where he's like, ah, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm, I know I'm part of a, a culture that's corrupted. Even though we're religious, 
and they were very religious. We are, we are under the judgment of God. We've rebelled from Him. We're not doing what we should. And even me, I'm like that, he says. Then what happens from there? What does God do? And this is what I love so much in verse 6. This is what the Lord does in that very place. He doesn't say to Messiah, well, good for you. You should know you're nothing but a worm. Bow down and worship me, you worm. He doesn't say that to Zaya. What does he do to Zaya? Well, God himself takes the initiative and sends the angel, and the angel comes with a coal, a live coal from the altar. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your mouth. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What's just happened there, my friends? What's happened is God has made him right, made him clean, has forgiven his sin. But how did he do that? And it's this kind of weird picture that we see where God arranged an angel to take a coal from the bry. But like the altar was like a giant bry in the Old Testament, where you walk into the temple, the outer court, and there was this giant bronze bry. That's like an altar, big altar, where they would sacrifice animals, and they would have the fire burning from the altar all the time. And so what the angel did is he took from the coal of the altar, and he put it on the lips of Isaiah. What does that mean? Well, essentially what this is, is that the altar and the coal is a symbol of sacrifice. And that Isaiah's sins are cleansed because of the sacrifice of another on his behalf. He's cleansed because he gets saved because of the lamb that was put upon the altar. Do you see what this is a picture of? What is this a picture of, my friends? It's a picture of Jesus. In other words, that the basis of Isaiah's um, forgiveness and right standing before God had nothing to do with how good Isaiah was. His sins are forgiven because of what God has done for him through Jesus. And I want to say that again, I want to remind us of this, that the basis of our right standing for God is the righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. You know, that we are saved because of the good works of another man. That we come into the presence of God because of the obedience of another man. And that I can only come in, not because of my obedience, Romans 5 says, but because of his obedience on my behalf. Isn't that humbling? And so we come on the basis of his mercy, not on the basis of, his, of our good works. It's a picture of Jesus, of what he's done for us. And in closing... How does Isaiah respond to this in, in this place? And look what it says in closing in verse 8. And so he has an experience of atonement. He has his sins forgiven. He's made right with God. And from this place, verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, and he gives what he said to him. And in closing, I want to say that God is wanting to raise up a generation of Isaiahs today. Of men and women like you and I, that on our own, we do not qualify. 
But with God, we can go and change nations. But the basis of us serving the Lord for the whole of our lifetime is that we need a vision of God, like Isaiah. We need to see his holiness and his lordship and his mercy and we in his grace and his glory. And we need to do so on the basis of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. God would want to use you. You know that. Do you believe today that God would desperate to use you? That he does so because of Jesus. And so I'd like to pray for us today. And I would like us to thank God and actually respond in worship. And I'd love us just to worship this great God that we've been reading about and talking about. And I would love us to ask the Lord afresh this morning to give us a revelation of what he is like. I don't know about you, but sometimes for me, I find that serving the Lord, even though I've been serving the Lord a long time, is a bit like walking through the mist. And I, I know that I'm called to see him and I worship him and I, I look to him and love him. But I find myself walking on a path, often, so to speak. But the path is filled with mist. And I can't see much in front of me. And it's like, Lord, I want to see greater glimpses of what you like. But I find that the mist sometimes, the, the things of this world, get in the way of me seeing something of the Lord. And I want to pray today, for me and for you, that the Lord would lift the mist as we're in Jesus. Um, that the Bible says that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and a revelation that we would know him better. Oh, I don't know about you, but I need a vision of God. I need to see the bigness of God. I need to make my own thoughts about myself a little bit less. And I need to see the thoughts of God made a little bit more. The greatness of God. I don't know about you, but I know that if you're here today, and maybe you're feeling disillusioned or a bit discouraged, or maybe you're feeling dry, even in yourself in your walk with the Lord, what is the thing that is going to sustain you to the end? Seeing Him. And as a response, we say we will give our lives into lifelong service for the King, just like Isaiah did. You know, Isaiah ended up serving God. It doesn't mean that you and I are going to, you're going to be in full-time ministry. But it does mean that you will serve him for the rest of your days. Because of who he is and what he is worth. Lord, we need to see you. Would you come and give us a, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation to know you better. That we would know the riches of your inheritance with the saints that we would know Lord the, the height and the depth and the width of the love of God that today Lord that though you have every right to strike us because we have rebelled from you we've sinned against you you didn't do that you came down and you came on a search and rescue mission to save us to redeem us to deliver us to make us your children Lord, we thank you that you've reached down to us. We didn't look for you. We didn't love you first. You have loved us first. And we thank you, Lord, that not only are you high and lifted up, but today that you are near and that you've drawn near to us through Jesus, through the Spirit. 
Would you come this morning, Lord? Would you come afresh? Would you burn in our hearts, Lord, a fresh passion and a fresh fire and a fresh love for you, Lord God? Lord, we don't want to work it up in our own strength. We want this to be of you as we look outside of ourselves. We're not going to look inward. I'm not going to look at myself. Lord, we are looking outward. We're looking upward, and we are looking at you. And we pray that you would sustain us. And Lord, would you forgive us where we uh, compare you with the things of this world? Would you forgive us today, Lord, where we've diminished you and we've made you less, maybe even putting you in a box? We've forgotten, Lord, how great you are. And we've maybe even believed, Lord, that, um, that you have forgotten us. That maybe even some here that feel like, God, have you forgotten me? But Lord, we know that you never forget. As Isaiah 40 says, and I want to read it to us. I want to read this with every eye closed. I want to read this to you this morning. I want to find it. Isaiah 40 verse 25, it says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Lord, the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out the host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? Carries on. But have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father, this morning we want to come before you and... Oh, we thank you that we serve such a great God. And I just want to pray just for one group of people this morning before we worship together. If you are here this morning and you know that you are not right with God, you know that if you have to die today, that your life, that you would be saying, woe is me, that maybe you've drifted or backslidden far from God. Or maybe you have never confessed Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. I want to say today the Lord has got your number. The Lord is looking upon you. He has hemmed you in. God has you surrounded. And he loves you. And I want to ask this morning, is there anyone, I want to ask you to raise your hand now, that would like to respond and you want to make right with God? love just to, is anyone like that? Just quickly raise your hand and say, Mike, that's me. I want to, I just want to give my life to Christ. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you.